electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, one shot, two shots, three shots, more? The FDA approving additional COVID shots for Americans with compromised immune systems. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA. This could get implemented right away. Doctors could start prescribing based on this emergency use authorization. How the policy and the patients are changing over the course of the pandemic. We're likely to see a pickup in this Delta infection probably, my guess is late September. And you're gonna see the Delta wave course through probably between late September through October. Hopefully we'll be on the other side of it or coming on the other side of it sometime in November. Plus how it's all affecting business owners in a conversation with CNBC's Kate Rogers that you'll only hear on this podcast. We do know that new business starts, people wanting to start new companies have gone up significantly over the last year. So I think there are new entrepreneurs that are willing to take a risk and a gamble. It's Friday, August 13th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right after this. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today, we're focused on reopening, reconnection, and frankly, fear. Andrew Ross Sorkin, Melissa Lee, and Scott Wapner got into the worries about the Delta variant and the pandemic's seemingly endless timeline. Here's Melissa. Facebook is the latest company to delay its plan to return U.S. employees to their offices. It initially planned to bring back workers in October with strict vaccination and mask requirements, but now it is pushing back that plan until January of next year. Amazon announced a similar plan for corporate employees last week. Uh, there are more and more. Our own right. company, NBC Universal, also postponed uh, back to the office plans till October. So, but a huge impact on so many parts of the of cities that we don't even think about, mm-hmm. whether it's the transportation sector. By the way, catering companies. There's all sorts of catering companies that, that typically you know, uh, cater like um, cafe, you know, corporate cafeterias and things like that. Right. That business goes away. I mean, there's lots of people who get impacted by this, even beyond just whether people are going into the office or not. 
I was talking to my real estate broker who operates in New York City, and he was saying that the rental market was picking up so rapidly that there are bidding wars for, for rents. But with the postponement with back to work, you got to wonder if that's also going to mm-hmm. slow down. So there's a whole other there's a whole ecosystem surrounding the office and what it means to go back to the office. Does this that make will be shut down properties? So if you remember, there was a run, if you will, on properties outside of big cities. I was thinking of that and I, right I, now, like right like now, the Hamptons. Are people renting for the rest? You know, there was a whole group of people who were just renting for. Yeah, now they're probably going to extend that. Or buying. Right. And that, the prices will remain. Although yesterday, NAR um, said that home, housing prices were moderating a touch right. in some of those communities. But I don't know. It could reverse just as easily. I think it gets extended in places like that, as, yeah. right. to your point. That's people, if you're already out there and you're planning on coming back because you had to be in the office, why wouldn't you extend your, your rent or right. your, your lease, if you could, if somewhere? But you know what's going to be suburb. different, I think, this year? Schools. You know, a lot of, well, of, a lot of oh, right. places right. in this country, right. people were renting or moving to other places. Because for, schools were remote. Because schools were remote yeah. and they thought they could, they could make it work. I think, I hope, for the, for the sake of kids. Yes, I hope we're wrong. That I hope they, we're very wrong and people yes. are actually able to at least get their kids uh, back to school and therefore... They're back to maybe where they at least originally lived. We'll see. That's the most important point that you make, though, about the school. We can only hope. Today, the FDA authorized COVID booster shots, a third vaccine shot for people with weakened immune systems. That includes those who've received organ transplants or have similarly compromised immune systems. Now, the CDC still needs to sign off on the move. Its advisory committee will meet today. But if approved, third shots could begin immediately. About 3% of Americans have weakened immune systems. The FDA's current acting administrator said others who are fully vaccinated are adequately protected and do not need an additional dose of the COVID vaccine, at least at this time. Squawk regular and a former FDA commissioner himself, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, joined our TV broadcast this morning. Let's get back to Andrew. How big is this decision? How quickly do you think it'll get approved? And, and how quickly do you think people will be, be getting those uh, third booster shots, Scott? Well, probably right away, um, depending on who we're talking about, how the CDC ultimately defines uh, immunocompromise in this setting. CDC, uh, FDA's decision last night that came at 11 o'clock last night is a little bit more narrow than um, it might have been. So they talked about people who are solid organ transplant patients and people who are similarly immunocompromised, so a comparable level of immune impairment to an organ, um, organ transplant patient. So now it's up to the CDC to interpret that and define it. Uh, it's probably going to be the case that CDC is going to enumerate specific kinds of conditions that would qualify and then make some kind of general recommendation and that's going to ultimately get put into practice. So this could get implemented right away. Doctors could start prescribing based on this emergency use authorization. A lot of patients who've undergone, undergone organ transplantation have already gotten third doses. Doctors have been doing that, oftentimes in protocols. But there probably are some patients who have not received a third dose who will now be more uh, eligible for it. Dr. Gottlieb, it's Scott. It's nice to see you this morning. I got a couple things for you. Um, I saw an interview yesterday, late afternoon, with with Dr. Fauci, who said something that I found, frankly, kind of surprising, and I'm wondering if you can opine on it. He said that the booster shots were not necessarily a result of the, as the word that he used was the durability of the vaccines themselves, 
but rather the already compromised immune systems of the people that we're talking about. In other words, those people never got the immune response that they otherwise would have gotten had their immune systems not already been compromised. I thought we were talking about the fact that the, the, the uh, immunity wanes after a period of time. His suggestion would, would say otherwise. Can you shed any clarity on that? Yeah, well, there's two separate issues. I mean, uh, Dr. Fauci is right that this authorization that FDA issued uh, last night really tries to address situations where patients probably never derive the full immune protection from the vaccine because of their immune impairment. There's a separate issue, a separate question around the declining immunity that we're observing in some of the clinical data, particularly out of Israel, also some of the U.S. data right now from people who were vaccinated a long time ago, so people who were vaccinated in December or January, and people who are older who don't have fully intact immune systems to begin with. And in that cohort, we are seeing an indication of declining immunity. Now, the judgment that public health officials are making here in the United States is that the declines aren't significant enough yet to warrant um, additional boosters. I think that the U.S. public health officials, and this is a policy call as much as a public health call, I think they want to continue getting first doses in Americans and probably pivot to booster shots probably sometime in September when they have data from the NIH on mix and match. So they'll have data on um, using Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's vaccine interchangeably. And they'll probably have worked through a larger swath of the population that's still seeking first doses. One interesting point is that Israel overnight also authorized booster shots for those 50 and over and healthcare workers. So they're starting to walk down their booster shots. They've largely fully revaccinated their population 60 and over, and now they're starting to walk it down the age continuum. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to keep in mind, we also um, gave immuniza- immunizations to the elderly population in nursing homes back in December, and also um, inoculated our healthcare workers back in December. So those would be the two cohorts that you would seek to give booster shots first to, people who are furthest out from being vaccinated and either who are at high risk of a bad COVID outcome, people in nursing homes, or those who come into contact with COVID constantly, like our healthcare workers. So you, you literally anticipated my follow-up question was about the, what Israel did o- overnight. And on that note, why does it feel like we're playing from behind? Why does it feel like we're following rather than leading? when it comes to booster shots, and why not just open it up to, for the, I don't know, whether it's 50 and, and above or health workers or, or whomever, why does it feel as though we're playing from behind? Well, I think this is where the policy call comes in. First of all, you know, Pfizer's going to apply for an emergency use authorization for a third dose this month. Moderna said they're going to apply next month. We'll have the data from that NIH study I referenced. So the, everyone's on a timetable to authorize this in, in around September. I suspect that's where we end up. Um, I think that this is a policy call as much as a public health call that U.S. officials want to continue trying to promote first vaccinations before they pivot to giving booster shots and bringing people into that and the long lines that will ensue as you see a rush to get those shots, particularly among the elderly population. The question is, is the, the declining immunity in that cohort significant enough right now that they're going to be at risk from this Delta wave. We haven't really seen that in a wholesale fashion in the South, and I think that's what CDC is taking comfort in. But this is literally something that's changing week by week. So as the Delta wave moves north, the question is, are we going to see more bad outcomes, particularly in nursing homes? So I would be worried about nursing homes right now, the infection getting into those settings against a backdrop where you have a patient population that probably has declining immunity and is more vulnerable than they were certainly five months ago. Final point I'll make is anyone who gets vaccinated now 
anyone who's been recently vaccinated has an inoculation that's going to take them through this season and will have robust protection against the Delta variant. We're really talking about people who are more than six months out, older individuals who probably didn't derive the full protection from the um, immunization to begin with because they have some immune impairment because of their advanced age. Scott, so look at a calendar for us just for a moment, or, or uh, your imaginary calendar, in terms of when people are going to get the booster shots, at what age, and at what point you think we will actually get to, I don't want to say the other side of this, but I'm thinking about this fall with booster shots, depending on age, then we're going to have hopefully kids getting access to this. At what point do you think that you can, you know, I don't know if we can ever claim victory anymore, but something close to victory. Well, look, we're transitioning from this being a pandemic to being more of an endemic virus, at least here in the United States and probably other Western markets. It's still going to be a pandemic in a lot of parts of the world um, where you don't have high vaccination rates. But we're now going through that process. So it's, it's not a binary point in time. But I think after we get through this Delta wave, this is going to become more of an endemic illness where you just see sort of a persistent infection through the winter. Um, pervasive infection, but not at the levels that we're experiencing certainly right now. And it's not necessarily dependent upon the booster shots. I mean, the booster shots will probably drive us further into that endemic phase as we protect more of the population, particularly the vulnerable population. But it's going to be driven more just by this Delta wave coursing its way through the U.S. population, getting to the other side of this. Scott, in terms of the boosters, um, and I know Moderna's working on one. I don't know if Pfizer's working on it in this respect to actually change the formula to deal with Delta itself. Right. Both companies are working on it. Um, you know, Pfizer is putting it into clinical development. We'll be doing testing on it. It's underway right now. Moderna is as well. Um, the hope is you never need to use it. Uh, the presumption is that the existing vaccine covers uh, this right. new Delta variant pretty well, and we wouldn't use a Delta variant vaccine in this setting. I think any time a new variant comes along that looks concerning, you're going to see the manufacturers at least start the process of developing new variant vaccines that target those those new strains. So you have it in your back pocket in case you need to pivot to it. And the good thing about these mRNA vaccines is the manufacturing process is pretty much plug and play. You don't have but so to if you, start But if you, wanted to, if, you to wanted to give Delta, if you wanted to give boosters that were specific to Delta, how quickly could, could, could we have access to those? Well, you could start manufacturing them in volume right now. Um, you'd still have to go through a regulatory process. But the reality is that you probably wouldn't want to do that unless you had clear evidence that the existing vaccine wasn't effective against the variant. Because even if you might surmise that a new variant vaccine targeting Delta might be slightly more effective against Delta, what you don't know is how does that vaccine work against everything else? And we have a lot of data on the existing vaccine. We know it works well against everything else. So you kind of take the bird in the hand in these situations. Unless you see a big drop off in effectiveness of the vaccine, against the existing strain that's circulating, and we don't see that right now. You know, Dr. Gottlieb, what investors are trying to figure out here is how how long this new stream of revenue is going to be for the likes of a Pfizer and a Moderna. So to that end, should we assume that these booster shots are going to be every six months for years out, that it's going to be like a flu shot? Yeah, well, look, I don't I certainly don't think it's going to be every six months. I think what what we've said from the outset is this could become an, an annual um, inoculation, much like the flu shot. It's unclear right now. You know, it could be the case that once you receive a third booster, patients are going to derive a more durable immunity or certainly people who are in immunocompromised will de- derive a more durable response. That doesn't mean that they're going to be protected in perpetuity. They might need a subsequent booster from time to time, but it might not be every year. It might be every other year. Um, Once you start spacing these out longer, you might derive a more durable response. But I think certainly for some cohort of patients, 
Those who are immunocompromised, it will be more frequent, maybe not every six months, but certain, certainly annually. For the rest of the population, it might be annually, it might be every other year. We don't know right now how durable the response is going to be after the third dose. The other big variable is, will this virus drift? If the virus continues to drift and our vaccines lose effectiveness over time against the prevailing strain, then you're going to need to reformulate the vaccines, much like we do the flu vaccine, because the strain changes each year. Um, so we'll, see, we'll have to see how much this, vac this virus changes over time. The presumption is it's going to continue to change, but certainly not the rate that it's mutating right now. Let me ask you a question, if I could, uh, getting back to the origin of, of this whole thing. Washington Post has a headline this morning, Dr. Gottlieb, that says in a new documentary, the WHO scientist who was involved in the investigation says that Chinese officials pressured the investigation and the investigators to drop the lab leak hypothesis. Where are you today in your mind about how this thing originated at the start can we definitively say at this point that we think it came from a lab? Do we work our way back from that? Where are you? Look, I don't think we could definitively conclude where it came from right now. Certainly the side of the ledger that speaks to the possibility that this came out of a lab, I think, has grown over time. The side of the ledger that points towards the zoonotic source has been fairly stagnant. We haven't found um, a species that it could have come from. We haven't really pieced together um, a good thesis on how this came out of nature. So that, that side of the ledger really hasn't budged since the early days, with the, with the exception of some slight additional evidence in terms of the genetic sequence as we evaluate that might point in that direction. So I think this is still a question very much open um, to debate. And I don't know that we're ever going to have a definitive answer to it. We're awaiting the 90-day report from the U.S. government intelligence agencies. That might partially inform this discussion. The reality is that WHO investigation was not a WHO investigation. Um, it actually was a joint investigation between the WHO and Chinese officials. So they jointly shared that investigation. Mm -hmm. The Chinese government did not cede control to the WHO team. So it was portrayed as a WHO independent investigation. It was not. The Chinese government participated in that investigation and had a say in the final conclusions that came out in that report. Th this is apparently coming from the, the person who actually led the joint investigation saying that that Chinese colleagues influenced the presentation of their findings. Right. We know that, um, you know, we've known that it hasn't been widely reported, but the Chinese government participated in the drafting of those final conclusions. Like I said, this was a joint report between Chinese government scientists and the WHO team. This was not an independent investigation by the WHO team. They had to work jointly with their Chinese counterparts inside China. So that, that right there says that this was a joint report. The Chinese government officials who participated in that joint investigation um, influenced the final outcome of that report. And it was portrayed by the media as an independent report. It was never an independent report. If you go back and look at the initial drafting of, that, of the guidelines of that team, Scott, I want to pivot to a, a slightly different issue, um, not vaccines, but actually therapeutics, because it's something we have not talked about for quite some time. And I know that very early on, there was a view that perhaps therapeutics were going to solve our problems long before a vaccine would. Where are we on therapeutics, um, given that it seems like remdesivir, which clearly does work in the hospital setting, at one point was going to be moved into an inhaler. I, I believe that they've stopped those, those tests. What, what's out there on the horizon? Yeah, look, this is a druggable target. I think we will get a small molecule inhibitor of viral replication that's effective against this coronavirus. There's nothing about how this coronavirus replicates that we shouldn't be able to drug the machinery that it uses to spread. 
There's three drugs in advanced development right now. One's by Pfizer that's in phase two, phase three studies. Another one by Merck. They in-licensed it from a company called Ridgeback that's been a good um, drug-finding company. Those are the two that are furthest along. They both look promising in early-stage clinical trials. They're in pivotal trials right now. There's a third drug by Roche that's in development that's a little bit further behind. There's a possibility that we could have a drug available this winter from one of these clinical trials. I think the clinical trials themselves are going to be challenging to run because you're going to be looking to run trials that either demonstrate that the drugs reduce the symptoms of COVID or reduce progression to severe disease, or they reduce the likelihood of coming, coming down with COVID if you're exposed to it. And when you're trying to run those trials against the backdrop of a largely vaccinated population, to try to look at those outcomes, you need to enroll a pretty big uh, cohort of people and probably need to follow them for an extended period of time, particularly if you're looking to demonstrate that the drugs reduce the progression to severe disease, because the reality is only a very small percentage of people with COVID progress to severe disease. And then, Scott, I was hoping you'd also just weigh in on what we are seeing in the corporate world right now uh, about moving back, return to work. We started the segment by talking about Facebook, in fact, moving back from October or bringing people back in the office in October, now moving to January. Amazon has done something similar. I know a lot of other companies that are thinking to follow suit. Um, again, this goes back to sort of looking at the calendar and thinking about vaccines for children, vaccines for adults, booster shots for adults. How are you advising companies um, to think about that? Yeah, well, I think that what's going to really drive these decisions is what does the Delta wave look like in the Northeast and other places now where you see companies moving back, back to work um, dates. We're likely to see a pickup in this Delta infection probably, my guess is, late September. And you're going to see the Delta wave course through probably between late September through October. Hopefully we'll be on the other side of it or coming on the other side of it sometime in November. Um, and we won't see a big surge of infection after this. On the other side of this Delta wave, you'll just sort of see persistent, pervasive infection, but not at the kind of levels we saw certainly last winter. Uh, if we follow that kind of timeline, I think if companies don't want to be reopening in the throes of the surge of the Delta wave, whatever the contours of that looks like, and we don't know right now how big of a wave of infection that's going to be, then the prudent thing to do would be right. to push it past October. Um, we're probably going to see that pick up you know, some point in late, this, late September. We're not seeing it right now. If you look in the tri-state region, you don't see a lot of Delta infection. Hopefully we stay that way because of all the vaccination, right. the prior infection that we've already had. Doctor, is, that, is, that, is this a shift in your view? And, and I ask because I listen to you every day when you, you, you come on this program, and I, I thought in my head at least that you felt that things by the end of September were going to really shift uh, and, and, and move down in terms of where the peak was. And now we're talking, it sounds like, end of October, potentially into parts of November. Well, look, the South is definitely showing an indication that cases are coming down. This is a big country, and the Delta wave is going to sweep across the country in a regionalized fashion. The South is going to start to look a lot better in September. I think there's already indications that cases are declining, even though the pressure on hospital systems there is going to continue to get worse. So the situation from a patient standpoint is going to continue to get worse before it gets better, even as new, new cases start to decline on a day-over-day -day basis. So by September, hopefully you'll see the other side of that curve in the south very clearly. But cases will be picking up in the northeast, the Great Lakes region, maybe the Pacific Northwest. They're going to be later to experience a delta wave. That's, it's probably going to coincide with the restart of school, some businesses returning. If you look at last summer as well, you had a big surge of infection in the south. Things felt pretty good here in the tri-state region. As we got into September, cases started to pick up. And then by, as it, as by the 
time we got into November or late October, that's when you really saw the surge of infection. Um, it probably will come a little bit earlier this year because this Delta variant is so contagious. And so my guess is you're going to start to see the pickup really by the end of September, and you're going to see us in the throes of it in October. How big that peak is, we don't know. Hopefully, we're, we're somewhat impervious to this Delta wave because of the vaccinations and the prior infection. I mean, I think every parent who's watching this interview and listens to your comments just now, Dr. Gottlieb, with school-aged children, are wondering, how is this all going to work with school? Well, the unvaccinated children. Well, especially the unvaccinated children. Yeah, that's a good point. How are we going to deal with that? This is why... This is why I think schools need to start the year with a level of caution and humility about the uncertainty with this Delta variant. We don't know how easy or hard this is going to be to control in a school setting. So this wouldn't be the time that I would be withdrawing mitigation tactics that we know can have some impact on trying to control the virus in those settings. And so the goal is to keep kids safe first and foremost. And the goal, the secondary goal is to get them back for in-class learning. If those are your two primary goals, you want to restart the year with with all the tactics that you can Uh, implement in place, your full complement of tools. So masks, um, keeping them in defined social pods, trying to improve ventilation, all the tools that we know work on the margins to try to control infection. Scott, uh, we appreciate your perspective. I I personally this time hope you're wrong. I always say that Scott is, you know, he's like my God on this stuff. He's always, he's he's been right. Yours and mine. And and I do think there's been a shift now. So we're going to have to keep our eyes on all of it. Uh, Have a great weekend, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. Always appreciate it. Next on Squawk Pod, more vaccines, more masks, and still more Delta. How restaurants are faring as they battle for business. CNBC's Kate Rogers. When there's low supply, obviously costs go up and restaurants are already facing a higher cost environment when it comes to labor. So the question here is, what do you wind up doing with that? Do you pass it off to the customer? We're back in a moment. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. As you heard Dr. Gottlieb say, times are tough still. And since we're a business podcast, you know we're serving up some more info on how this Delta variant, these vaccines, these boosters, and this ongoing, never-ending pandemic are all affecting the economy. I caught up with one of CNBC's reporters. I am Kate Rogers. I cover small business, entrepreneurship, and the restaurant industry for us at CNBC. A bi-coastal chat over Zoom. Pretty much to the day, 17 months ago, the country's restaurants were hit with a tidal wave. They let the majority of their employees go. The ones that couldn't transition to takeout or online completely closed down, some for the very last time. Um, But since then, we've seen three vaccines, a resurgence of life and kind of hope. Um, But what's the damage been on this whole industry? The last year has been 
a fundamental shift for the restaurant industry. They had to learn to adapt their operations. They had to learn how to cater to customers in an ever-changing environment. So many have had to let workers go, which was a really tough decision, particularly for independent restaurants that have been around for a really long time. Uh, Some of them have had to close their doors and have not been able to reopen. I think some of the biggest shifts have happened around delivery and to go. You've seen more and more restaurants get creative, start offering things that they hadn't offered in the past because they recognized that consumers were either not able to come and dine on site, not willing to, because they're scared about COVID uh, and other things that, uh, are top of mind that were never really on the radar before. Um, And they've had to kind of get up to date on different technologies and options that they maybe had foregone before because, you know, they were, they were used to more traditional operations with onsite dieting. So I think there's been a lot of shifts that have happened. Uh, The damage to the industry at the peak, you know, a hundred thousand restaurants or more had been closed either permanently or temporarily, according to the national restaurant association, there's been aid that's gone out the door, whether it's in the form of PPP economic injury disaster loans or the restaurant revitalization fund from the SBA and the federal government. And those programs have certainly helped the industry. But when you talk to experts, it's about what's ahead, you know, they'll tell you more aid will certainly be needed on the restaurant front. Mm. Um, You know, you're talking a little bit about the innovation and you're right for all the damage, there's been tons of innovation. Restaurants are converting space to co-working, remote co-working havens with their PPP money. There are QR codes pretty much everywhere. I mean, Will I ever get a paper or plastic menu again? I, I don't know. What are some of the lessons that these businesses are taking with them as we continue to work through the pandemic? You know, I think that they've definitely gotten more savvy in their technology platforms because they realize that customers have now engaged with the brand in a new way over the last year. And a lot of customers like that convenience. I do think there is a ton of pent up demand for people to go out and dine on site. People miss interacting with one another. You know, we hear, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson often talk about the great human reconnection. Vaccinations are the unlock for what we call the great human reconnection. Getting vaccine, getting shots in arms. And if you look at what happened in the U.S., the great human reconnection has begun. We've all been inside for the last year. I think that there is certainly an element to the restaurant story that is about humans getting back out there, reconnecting with people, socializing in person, but there's Delta. And that is a huge concern, particularly for restaurants who saw what the pandemic did to business last year. And I think that they're taking some of those lessons with them into the future. With Delta, we've talked a ton. And earlier this week, we spoke with Steve Leisman, who talked a lot about um, vaccine mandates and testing moving forward. Danny Meyer talks about his vaccine mandates at his own, at his own restaurants. What is the vibe among restaurant and bar owners right now with whether they're incentivizing, do they even have the money to incentivize some of their employees? Well, this is such a nuanced issue. So out here in San Francisco, you're seeing the San Francisco Bar Alliance's big group of bar owners out here recommending that bars require proof of vaccination to drink indoors. Mm-hmm. And that's their recommendation. And by and large, you know, the vaccination rates in San Francisco are very high. A lot of the restaurant owners have been cautious. And on the independent restaurant side, so owners that have one, two, three, four locations, I think you're going to see more doing what 
New York City has done in saying you need proof of vaccination to dine indoors. If not, you're welcome to join our outdoor space because those outdoor parklets and tables have become so important to keeping businesses alive over the last year. They also provide another option for people who potentially are not vaccinated, people who feel safer dining outdoors right now with everything that's going on with the variants and COVID. Uh, in terms of incentivizing employees, it's been a rough year for restaurants. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of them had extra money on hand before COVID happened. They certainly don't have it now. They're also facing down a huge labor challenge right now. It is so hard to find and keep workers. I think a lot of people have reassessed what work looks like over the last year. The restaurant industry has certainly lost workers. So I think when you're asking about what owners are doing, they're grappling with these decisions. It may feel like the right thing to do to keep everyone safe to mandate a vaccine. But on the flip side, you could wind up losing employees just the same way you could wind up turning off customers by doing that. I think there's a lot to think about there. And, you know, Danny Meyer has said it's the right thing to do. That's what he's doing. New York City's doing it. I think we're going to see more of that. But I think particularly um, in states where vaccine rates are low, you're going to see owners kind of grappling with what the right move is there. For companies that are heavily franchised, like a McDonald's or like a Domino's, I think they're in a tough spot with mandating vaccines because franchisees are technically small business owners of their own and they kind of set pay rates, you know, schedules, policies within their own restaurants. So it'll be really interesting to see what winds up happening on that front in terms spoke, of vaccine mandates and staffing. Mm -hmm. We spoke to uh, John Payton from Dine Brands about that very issue. And mm -hmm. he had some interesting things to say about how he's kind of not in control because 96% of the restaurants that they own are actually franchised. The one distinction that we see is depending on the geography of the country, uh, guests are more likely to be wearing masks versus not. Um, and that really, that really is the, the, the distinction. Exactly. And you've seen the National Labor Relations Board and McDonald's kind of tangled up over the last few years over this joint employer rule. You know, are McDonald's and its franchisees joint employers or are they not? And if you see corporate make an overarching policy decision like that, does that kind of turn the page on what joint employer looks like? It's really interesting, especially because we think about the majority of restaurants that were still in business and doing honestly a bang up business during the pandemic were these fast food franchise restaurants. So, oh yeah. I mean, the four best were Wingstop. I mean, the same store sales for that company over the last two years are huge. Um, Papa John's, Domino's and Chipotle, and they've all done digital carry out delivery very well. And they had that ecosystem in place to kind of roll out and lean on during the pandemic. Um, so most of those are franchise, you know, Chipotle's company owned, but still, it's just interesting to kind of think about what they do at a time when labor is also a huge challenge. And do you want to potentially, you know, lose people if you put a vaccine mandate in place that workers are not behind? hundred percent. I wanted to pivot slightly to labor. Uh, obviously it's an extremely difficult staffing environment, as you kind of mentioned. Um, how's hiring going? Hiring is tough for many restaurants out there. We have done stories on restaurants having to limit their hours. I interviewed a restaurant owner that's been in the business for more than two decades in Florida last week. He's cooking seven days a week and he's the owner because he can't find enough people wow. to staff his kitchen fully. And he doesn't want to lose out on all the consumer demand that's come 
roaring back essentially mm-hmm. over the last few months. So he's been manning his own grill seven days a week, happy to do it, but would love to find extra help. And he's said, you know, he's offered starting salaries between 15 and $20 an hour, and he's just not able to find people. So that's just one example of a story we're hearing over and over again in the industry. You've also seen big fast food and quick service restaurants from Chipotle to McDonald's, raising pay for workers, Papa John's, giving bonuses and referral bonuses to workers. There's more incentives to number one, retain the workers that you have and the workers that those brands in particular have hired throughout the course of the pandemic. uh, And also to get them to refer people internally so that those companies can staff up. And I think particularly on the fast food side, you're hearing more about benefits, opportunities beyond just the entry-level job, because you want to show people that there's a path to growth at these companies. And so in terms of messaging and recruitment, I certainly feel that that's been a larger storyline in the fast food space over the last three to six months. Mm -hmm. We heard from Richard Allison from Domino's um, recently, I believe it was this week, talking about uh, how difficult the staffing environment is. It's been uh, the toughest staffing environment, you know, that we've seen in a long time, you know, over the course of uh, the late spring uh, and into the summer. You know, we're starting to see some uh, pick up again uh, in application flow coming through, but uh, but it's been a tough, uh, tough staffing environment. He also talked about another difficulty facing the industry, which was supply chain. And that's hitting not just restaurants, but also small businesses and, and retail. I think Courtney Reagan was talking about just the other day that for every retailer, while sales might be up significantly from last year, supply chain costs are so high that they're basically just breaking even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've certainly been hearing about supply chain issues in the industry. We've heard it from companies like Domino's, Papa John's was talking about it in their chicken wing supply uh, mm-hmm. just a few months ago. Wingstop had talked about wing supply. And as you mentioned, when there's low supply, obviously costs go up and restaurants are already facing a higher cost environment when it comes to labor. So the question here is, what do you wind up doing with that? Do you pass it off to the customer? Because they also need to pay people more in this tough hiring environment in order to attract and retain workers uh, to staff the restaurants. And if you're not able to staff properly and you also have to limit your hours, you're losing out on money there. So all of this is happening at once and it's really, really challenging. I'd say particularly for the smaller independent uh, small businesses and restaurants out there that don't have the money in the same way that larger companies do, uh, you know, to up pay and benefits. Many want to, but I'm not sure that, you know, an entry level worker can make $20 an hour at, at restaurants uh, where the cost of living is is lower, you know? And mm-hmm. that's something that I think a lot of owners are trying to navigate. We just did a survey with Momentive and CNBC, and it focused on small business confidence. And we talked about inflation. 70% of small business owners say they're experiencing supply costs. About 40% are raising their prices because of higher costs. But you have to remember, say that they're also absorbing those higher costs tied to rising supply costs. So that's less money for a business to then invest in because they're eating that cost there. Mm -hmm. More than half said that they had supply chain disruptions and 34% 
said that the biggest consequence of having those supply chain disruptions is that they lead to higher costs for supplies. So when we talk about rising labor costs and we talk about supply chain disruptions, we have to also remember that supply chain costs are also increasing Mm -hmm. at the same time where restaurants are looking to invest in safety, invest in proper staffing, and also invest in keeping the workers that you're hiring on board with you for months and years to come. So there's just a lot at play here for companies and restaurants in particular that have already navigated a really challenging year. And let's not forget, all of this is also happening at a time when COVID cases are rising again. So they're staring down a very uncertain future. The NFIB just came out with its monthly survey on small business optimism. It took a dip in July. Small business owners are obviously optimistic about their futures, but they're not feeling as good because the labor crunch is impacting their ability to invest and grow. 49% of owners reported job openings that could not be filled. That's a 48-year record high, according to the NFIB, a huge number and a huge challenge. One final question from me. I mean, I, so you're in San Francisco, I'm in New York. I walk down the street and I see four of my favorite small businesses, my favorite nail salon, all closed down. And then I see grand openings for, I mean, there was a brewery that opened up in Soho in the middle of the pandemic, um, a lot of outdoor space. So obviously people were comfortable going there, but I mean, it was a huge real estate footprint and a huge bet to open up. And I'm seeing more and more restaurants and bars open up and it's not the ones that close down. It's brand new ones that don't necessarily have the same owners. What do you make of that? I think that there have been real estate opportunities, uh, and we've even heard some of the publicly traded companies talk about real estate opportunities right now for investing and opening new businesses for owners that have the capital and the the stomach, quite frankly, to do it in an uncertain environment. Uh, I think that a lot of people have reassessed what they want to do, and we do know that new business starts, people wanting to start new companies, have gone up significantly over the last year. So I think there are new entrepreneurs that are willing to take a risk and a gamble. I think you have to have that type of spirit and outlook if you're willing to start something new, particularly in a pandemic. And as I mentioned, there's also pent-up demand. So for people who are not as concerned about Delta, for people who um, have not traveled or or gone out to eat much in the last year, I do think that there is some consumer demand to do things. back out. Okay. Well, hey, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. We tried a few new things this week. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Squawk CNBC or in the comments on Apple Podcasts. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good, safe weekend. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.